The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, now, that was a hit off of our latest album. Boomer! That was off our latest album, Go F*** Yourself. That was the eponymous track. Uh, and now I am going to hand it over to my guitarist, who is, for some reason, also applauding for our music. James, James, tell them what the next song we're going to be singing. Thank you! Thank you! Hello. Thank you! Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Seattle. I'm your guitarist, James. And I'm here to say I've got a groove in a major way. Thank you! <laughs> and uh, I'm here to, uh, to play uh, this next one. We're just going going out to all my peeps out there who like cover songs. <laughs> Our guitarist James is a late night R&B DJ. Only in the late night. Um, by day. Uh, arena rocker by night. Late night by day. And rocker by night. All sex machine. You know um, it. Wondering how low I can get my voice. At this point, it's just vocal fry. Hi, this is the Third Men Podcast. (laughs) I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I'm your co-host, James Kaminsky. And this is... That was was nice, James. Thank you. And this is a uh, Jack White history podcast where we go over Jack White's music and... Mm -hmm. Oh, baby. (laughs) And history 
and uh, music videos sometimes. That's we right. We do that. And yeah. songs. And this week, James, we're going to be hitting the people mm, with... That... <laughs> we're going to be hitting the people with a, uh, a topic that's going to be kind of fun for us, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I would say, Paul. Um, so this, <laughs> this episode is called... It's going to be a series of episodes, but this is our first in the series. It's called Five on the Live. And James, do you want to tell the people what Five on the Live means? Well, I've been taking time doing it all alone. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Five on the Live <laughs> is we're going to pick five live tracks and we're going to theme them around different things. So, like, for instance, this episode, we're going to pick five cover songs performed live that we like in any of Jack White's band iterations. But, uh, you know, we could do anything. We could do live album cuts. We could do live duets. Uh, anything. On future episodes. This one, we're going to be doing covers, James. We're going to be doing five on the live covers. I'm ready. And I'm really excited. I've got uh, some great songs that Jack and company, as we try not to say anymore, yeah. have done live. And I'm, uh, I'm excited to share them with you and the audience at large. Yeah. Uh, and I think my guitar is ready to play and fiddle away some of these cover songs. But before we get to all of that, Paul... Is there something we should be smelling? Yes, Paul. In fact, I think I smell a fact. Astounding fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact is the knowledge. Would you like to tell the people what I think I smell a fact is? Yes, I understand this one quite clearly. <laughs> it's when we take um, a different cover song. <laughs> <laughs> I think I smell a fact is the segment of the show in which we find something uh, that uh, relating to a previous topic, some more information or something that we had questioned earlier, and instead of doing a whole new episode around it, we cram it into this little segment so that we can deliver it to you, uh, hot and fresh, fresh hot take on uh, of facts. For you guys. Yes, indeed, James. And we've got a good one this week, courtesy of Callie Durga. Thank you, Callie. Callie is our uh, fact checker extraordinaire. She appeared last uh, on the podcast on the Broken Boy Soldiers episodes, and we had a lot of fun talking with her there. But this one has to do with Broken Boy Soldiers, James. It does indeed. Callie was quick to point out that in Steady As She Goes, the song, there's a line, had too much to think, Paul, which was apparently cribbed Right from a Captain Beefheart song, which is Ashtray Heart. Oh, an Ashtray Heart. Oh, that should be familiar to Jack White people, eh? It should and is familiar because Jack and the White Stripes covered that song. Quite a bit. Yeah. It was part of a single. It was a B-side. Yeah, it was a B-side. To a single. Another day. Punk. 
That's a good cover. It was the B-side to Party of Special Things to Do, Paul. Oh, another good song. Jack's love of Captain Beefheart has been no stranger to the podcast lately. We talked about that a few times. Uh, We talked about that, in fact, on our episode 33, The Big Three, when Jack describes the Captain Beefheart song that he has to listen to three times because he's obsessed with it, (laughs) uh, which is... Moonlight on Vermont, which was from Captain Beefheart's album Troutmast Replica, and Jack is just obsessed with that song and has to listen to the intro three times. Mm. Um, so that was uh, that was an interesting uh, little tidbit there. But Captain Beefheart pops up time and again with Jack. Yeah. He's a big fan. Also, Paul, on Party of Special Things to Do single, which was released by Sub Pop, one of the few times Sub Pop actually released a White Stripes thing, it also had a third Captain Beefheart song on it, can you name that song? Oh, man. Wow. Well, he Is it China Pig? It is China Pig. Ding, 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 China ding, Pig! Ding. See, I thought he wrote China Pig. Man, that shows you. It goes to show you what I know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Let's play a little bit of those songs. Yeah. And that, that was a great little uh, diversion into uh, the beef heart uh, yeah. And also some, some nice facts that we've done smell. When I reflect on that fact. James, that was a lovely segue into our topic for this week. And I'm very excited about this, James. You ready to, you ready to kick this off? I'm ready to kick this off, Paul. Let's kick it right square in the boss <laughs> James we're going to kick things off here I'm going to go first you know cuz you know whatever yeah I'm going to go course. first I won the no, coin please. toss and we're going to kick things off here with a song called Keep It Clean familiar with this song however i do remember that the the rack and tours did play it yes. but i remember that from your rack on tours 
episode. Uh, that's right. No, uh, you know what? It wasn't from that one. It was from Stephen Scott's Third Man segment. I played a little bit of it from the Greek theater when he saw the Rack and Tours in 2008. That's right. That's yes. right. I do. I just. I remember you telling me about it. So uh, tell me about this. What is this? Well, well, that's that's interesting. You bring that up because that's actually the thing that made it pop up on my radar. Because even though we saw that tour and they very likely played it on the show we saw, and mm. even though it was included in the Live at Montreux DVD, which I know we both have, I never really retained any knowledge of that song or thought about it much. Until recently when we were going through and talking about Blue Veins and Callie Durga pointed out Hovefest and the mm. and the Blue Veins there, when I was watching the full Hovefest show, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, th- this song. And I remember thinking it's really cool. So anyway, uh, the performance I'm picking here, James, is of Keep It Clean from the Tours from Hovefest on June 26th, 2008. It was released... Not the version I'm reciting here. This the, the version I'm reciting here wasn't released, but it was released, like we said, on that Live at Montreux DVD recorded live on July 7th, 2008 at the Miles Davis Hall. Uh, that's that Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. So that's what that DVD is. Yeah. But we're going to start here with the original recording and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Okay. And by the way, this has become like my new favorite song. I play it all the time. I think I've played it on every car ride since I started researching it because it's really cool. <laughs> it was written by Charlie Jordan, and uh, Charlie Jordan was a, a blues singer. I would say Delta Bluesman, but he's not. He's from St. Louis, but that's the kind mm. of... He's from that era of the blues. And he uh, he was a bluesman from St. Louis, singer, songwriter, and he was also a talent scout. So for everyone who is watching American Epic, he is one of those guys that wound up going around looking for talent around America, which is really cool. And by the way, if you haven't been watching American Epic, watch it. The finale was incredible. So he's basically the guy that picked Brendan Fraser in Mexico in that baseball movie that I can't remember. Yeah, the scout, and that was... The, yeah. that, you're 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 thinking of uh, Albert Brooks, but I guess yeah, yeah, close, yeah, yeah. You know, Albert Brooks. Al- yeah, you know, he's the one who wrote the song "Keep It Clean." It's likely that Steve will look to you as a father figure. I'm trying to fill those shoes. I'll do the best I can. But you should realize this is a father that Steve might want to put a bullet through. How does he feel about his uncles? Albert Brooks has worn a blue shirt. Um, at some point. <laughs> so. That's his only connection to the blues. And what are you doing later on? <laughs> Maybe we could do some laundry? Right. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, he recorded, uh, Charlie Jordan, not Albert Brooks, uh, recorded for both the Vocalion and Decca labels in the 1930s and toured extensively over a 20-year period starting in the 1920s. Mm. His biggest hit was Keep It Clean, and that was recorded in mid-June of 1930. Cross. I jumped on your pop cause I thought it was a horse. Now, rode him over, give him a coke cola, now my soda, sauce of ice cream, take soap and water, for to keep it clean. Up she jumped, down she fell, her mouth flew open like a mushroom shell. Now, ride her over, give her coke cola, now my soda, sauce of ice cream. Take soap and water for to keep it clean. Of note here, the Rax version that I pulled is from mid-June as well. So I don't, that's obviously a coincidence, but kind of funny. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I've also seen the song credited alongside songs like Big Four Blues as the first recordings of his ever released on the Vocalion label, but it's from everything I've been able to find from this guy's discography, Keep It Clean was the first thing that was put out by him. Hmm. Well, the Big Four was the follow-up to Jack's Big Three. All right. <laughs> uh, so this is via a website called Mike Ballantyne, which uh, I'm just understanding now is a pun. Charlie Jordan's Keep It Clean has been recorded by a number of people, including Dave Von Ronk and Colin Linden. New words were added by Von Ronk for his performances, and Al Dodge and Robert Armstrong wrote completely new and modernized lyrics for the song. Hmm. Uh, that was reworked and put out under the title get a load of this get a load of this was included in the repertoire of the 1974 lineup of robert crumb and his cheap suit serenades yeah Yeah. i'm very familiar with those guys they're all playing banjos and they're all slightly angry crotchety cartoonists yeah robert crumb richard oxtot and dodge and armstrong so those guys did a version basically of keep it clean nice so i'll say the lyrics of this song and then i'll sort of go back and say what they were changed to for the reworked version but the lyrics of this song really had me scratching my head james okay on the surface they're very playful and fun I went to the river, couldn't get across, jumped on your papa because I thought he was a hoss, <laughs> and I rode him over, gave him Coca-Cola, lemon soda, saucer of ice cream, it takes soap and water for to keep it clean. Up she jumped, down she fell, her mouth flew open like a mussel shell, your sister was a teddy, your daddy was a bear, put the muzzle on your mama because she had bad hair. If you want to hear that elephant laugh, take him down to the river, wash his yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to go to heaven when you D-I-E, you got to put on your collar and your T-I-E. If you want to get rabbits out of that L-O-G, you got to put on the stump like a D-O-G. So, run here, doctor, run here fast, see what's the matter with his yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking like, Oh, yeah, these are kind of playful. He's talking about ice cream a lot. It's kind of childish. And I was riding down the freeway, and I was listening to it, and I was starting to sing along with it, and I was singing, what the f*** is lemon soda? And then I was like, soft serve ice cream. He's talking about pee and poo. This is a (laughs) sex thing. Oh, it is. And I screamed out the car, this is a sex thing, because I was like, <laughs> oh my god, I had no, because I had no idea, I wasn't even thinking like that. But yeah, he's talking about washing your junk yeah. before, yeah. Yeah. Sue me, alright? I didn't get it right away. I was like, alright, yeah, I was ready to all take right. it at face value. I can't say anything, I'm looking at the lyrics right now, so yes, I I could, <laughs> I could read it that it's a, a sex thing. Her mouth flew open like a muscle shell. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sec. Um, but if I wasn't reading it and I was just listening to it, sure. I, it would be easy listening that you would, you know, just watch your yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Robert Crumb version just changed some of the lyrics. That bring a load of RC Cola TV dinner, plate of Twinkies, takes a pink burrito for me to keep it clean. He kind of modernized ah, and stuff. He, he made it even more sexual. Yep. <laughs> Another fun fact here, Charlie had a nickname what that was Uncle Skipper. So let's huh. 
Let's think about that for a moment. Also, nearly a year later, Charlie Jordan himself recorded the song again and changed all the lyrics. And there's a few different... He added things like, You got a head like a mouse, mouth like a goat. Every time you see me, you looking for some soap. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So Charlie Jordan was a frequent collaborator with Big Joe Williams in the 40s. Charlie also had a second career as a bootlegger during Prohibition and was shot in the leg during an altercation in 1928, which caused him to have crutches for the rest of his life. His his career as a bootlegger is actually chronicled in his song, Bootlegger's Blues. I feel like once you get crutches like permanently as a blues singer, that becomes part of your name. (laughs) Charlie Crutch. Charlie Crutches Jordan. Yeah, exactly. uh, Limps. Charlie limps. Charlie no legs. No. (laughs) Charlie kind of legs. So this is via mudcat.org. Jordan was born in 1890 in Mableville, Arkansas, and served in World War I. Damn. And later hoboed and worked the medicine shows until a bullet in the leg occasioned by an argument over his manufacture of illegal liquor confined his activities to St. Louis. He wound up dying of pneumonia in 1954 in St. Louis. And so that's that's kind of his story there. Now, Jack's version, what the, the Rackin' Tours did... They kind of moderned it up. They made it sound a little more like a kink song or something. They put that guitar riff on it. They had Jack sort of do the spoken word aspect of it, but they really sort of fleshed it out a little bit, particularly in this Hovefest version. Jack also continues the fine tradition of putting his name in old bluesman songs because mm. he says... Uh, Good and gross. Yeah. Uh, But it's a high-energy guitar rock realization of what is a very playful, lyrically bouncy song. Uh, It sounds like a song tailor-made for Jack, or the other way around. Mm -hmm. You have to wonder if things like Little Cream Soda and something had its origins in songs like this. It's slice-of-life stuff, but real frisky. The lyrics are super dirty, obviously, and are given a dirty inflection, and Jack especially gives you that dirty inflection of just how sexual this tune is. But, you know, it's funny, I watched this not long after I was watching the Bonnaroo show, after we got all those DVDs from Third Man, Mm -hmm. and uh, during that Bonnaroo show, Jack does that talking to the crowd where he's like, he's like waving his hand, and then he's like pausing, and he's like, you know, people, nobody loves anymore, whatever he was saying. And in this, like, when you watch him during Hovefest, he looks like he's doing pretty much the exact same thing, only he's singing the songs. <laughs> so that's that's interesting. There's an excerpt from uh, Paul Oliver's book, Songsters and Saints, talking about the tune. Uh, Oliver comments that Jordan's line, We don't know what keeping it dirty means, embracing himself and the record listeners, emphasizes his identification with the audience and their familiarity with a body of bawdy songs that were widely known. Dirty Mother Foyer, The Dozens, Sweet Petunie, Shave em Dry, The mm. Ma Grinder, Just a Spoonful, Shake It and Break It, etc. And then sort of lastly, just talking about this song, I think Jack's music has an inherent sexuality to it and an inherent playfulness. And a bite. So this song kind of fits all of those different criteria. And when he performs it, he talks to the audience in a rap 
it sounds like a, he's preaching, and he's preaching more of an attitude than a belief, if that makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's Keep It Clean, James. That's my first song. Fantastic choice. Shave Him Dry. I do. I am actually familiar with that one. <laughs> are you really? Uh, yeah. There's there's a couple songs that are known to be pretty dirty and were shared around my college campus for quite some time, including that one. So my first pick, the my first cover song that I picked uh, from a live version is actually Mother Nature's Son. Ooh. Yeah. So we go we go from a, a dirty song into a, yeah. a pretty clean McCartney pop number. Uh, so it was written by Lennon McCartney, but uh, yeah, it, it's Paul. It's Paul McCartney. It's pretty uh, poppy <laughs> and boppy, and uh, it's not Lennon's style, but it's good. It's a it's a good song. Uh, it was made famous by The Beatles, and it was uh, originally released uh, on the 1968 album The Beatles, otherwise known as The White Album. True. Released on November 22nd, 1968. Uh, it was recorded on August 9th and 20th of 1968, and it was actually written in Rishikesh, India, while The Beatles were there with the Maharishi, who basically was teaching The Beatles how to what was it transcendental meditation yeah 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 and uh, uh, also notable people there donovan and who, uh also brian wilson who's and, the other one uh the the jane asher so it had donovan's influence on this song i think is pretty clear and donovan's influence on the beatles uh, after they got back from rishikesh is pretty clear because once they get back they start doing all this finger picking stuff which donovan taught them right so that's where you get songs like this and julia and uh, dear prudence which is the george song that oh george wrote a verse for hurdy-gurdy man i thought donovan wrote a verse for george too yeah uh, george contributed to uh, hurdy-gurdy man although that that wasn't included in the final version. Right. Apparently it was inspired by a lecture that also inspired Lennon's Child of Nature, which was uh, kind of turned into the song Jealous Guy, released on Imagine, which is a, it's a pretty... Devastating song. <laughs> like, Elliot Smith does a version of it where I'm just like, oh God, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of McCartney's stripped-down acoustic songs that he kicked off with, like, Yesterday and then continues on into his solo stuff which you can definitely hear in uh, like ram and assorted other like mccartney mccartney 2 all those mm-hmm. so mccartney reportedly took 25 takes of the song before setting on take 24 as the final song mm. which makes sense for him he was notoriously doing a lot of takes 
for his yeah. for his songs, uh, much to Lennon's chagrin. <laughs> yeah, Obladi Oblada and Maxwell Silverhammer being the other two that reportedly were exhaustive in their amount of takes. Yes, and then it was the song was also covered by Harry Nelson, who wrote the uh, the Lime in the Coconut song, and among many others. Many others, yeah. <laughs> but that's one yeah, uh, I Harry. know. A lot of people know. Uh, also by John Denver, Sheryl Crow, and Danger Mouse, to name a few. I've never heard the Danger Mouse version, but I'm interested. They say they never really miss you till you dead or you gone. So on that note, I'm leaving after the song. So you ain't gotta feel no way about Jay so long. But at least let me tell you why I'm this way. Hold on. Boys can see by Gloria Carter and Adnan Reeves who made love on the sycamore tree, which makes me a more sicker. It's from the Gray album. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so Jay Z, which is great, actually. Great. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Feel free to boo. Um, <laughs> so. Jack White covered the song. He covered it on June 2nd, 2010 at the Paul McCartney Gershwin Prize concert at the White House. So he played this in front mm-hmm. of President Obama, which is yes. pretty pretty interesting. He played it acoustic. It was never released on record, but it was aired on PBS on July 28th, 2010. And it's readily available on YouTube if you want to find it. Yeah, it's great. Uh, via F- Feel Numb which is a website many artists attended and performed at this grand event. Foo Fighters played Band on the Run, Elvis Costello performed Penny Lane, and even the Jonas Brothers performed Drive My Car with McCartney's band. His touring band, so that's Abe and yeah. Rusty and with and um, Rusty and Wicks and with Joe Joe Jonas, well, who are the other Jonas Brothers? There's jo- jo- a- Abe Jonas, Abe Jonas, Rusty, Rusty Jonas. Jonas. There's Legs Jonas and there's uh, and Paul McCartney, who's part of the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> There's Limp Jonas. By the way, should be noted in the last episode of American Epic, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but Jack White claims that uh, he's very excited for the next special guests to be showing up at the at the studio to cut tracks, uh, the Beatles and Justin Bieber. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to see. James, he finds an upholstery shop in the show and fixes the thing in real time. <laughs> He makes the woman who works at the upholstery shop leave the sewing machine so he can use it. (laughs) Well, when you're Jack White, I guess you could do that. (laughs) And he does it well. And the thing works. I was watching um, a documentary. It was the Detroit Rock documentary that was in, like, Sweden or Norway or something. One of the girls who was in some no-name band that didn't make it in Detroit was being interviewed about Jack White, and she was really jealous of him. And she was saying, like, yeah, of course he's making a career out of it. You know, Of course he doesn't want to come back here. He was an upholsterer or whatever, and he doesn't want to do that for the rest of his life. And I'm like, you don't know him at all, do you? Yeah, you, no, you don't. He'd be perfectly happy. To continue via Film Numb, my favorite performance was from Jack White, who covered the Beatles song Mother Nature's Son. But he mashed it up with That Would Be Something, a McCartney solo song from his first post-Beatle release, the self-titled album McCartney, which is probably one of the best songs from McCartney, because McCartney's kind of a mishmash of little samples and ditties. Meet you in the pouring rain now, mama. Meet you in the pouring rain. 
the pouring rain now, Mama. Meet you in the pouring rain. Meet you in the pouring rain now, Mama. Meet you in the pouring rain. Meet you in the falling rain, Mama. Meet you in the falling rain. Meet you in the falling rain, Mama. Meet you in the falling rain. That would be something. It really would be something. That would be something. To meet you in the falling rain, mama. Meet you in the falling rain. Meet you in the falling rain, mama. Meet you in the falling rain. But I love that album to death, and so it was really cool to hear that. It's also really cool to hear Jack White playing McCartney and Beatles songs because we we never really got that from his White Stripes. Days. No, it's this and Let Me Roll It from Brandon Benson were the two that I was so happy to hear because it's two McCartney solo songs, and that's that would be something is a pretty deep cut. Yes, for anyone beyond the average Beatle music listener. So the fact that Jack mashed it up with that and thought to mash it up with that, yeah. is incredible. And it's. I, I want to stress. This isn't the first time he's, you know, covered live a Beatles song. He played actually "Year Blues" live, mm-hmm. and it's really cool to hear that. The only recording I could find of that one, though, specifically, is recorded through a camera where guys are singing along to it, so you can't really hear Jack screaming the, the lyrics. Oh yeah. Uh, which you know, <laughs> screw guys who scream along with songs. Am I right, Paul? <laughs> um, we we, uh, yes. we we do that a lot. Anyway. We're- we're very good at that, yes. <laughs> And Jack played his Claudette for the performance, Claudette being one of his guitars. So via Billboard, playing in front of an audience that included President Obama, Stevie Wonder, Elvis Costello, and McCartney, White captured the song's somber feeling while performing with an acoustic guitar and no backing band. Yeah, it should also be noted that Jack gets on stage with everyone at the end, including President Obama and Jerry Seinfeld, of all people, Vice President Jerry Seinfeld, and uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> Paul McCartney himself, and they all sing, Hey Jude. Jack looks kind of uncomfortable with the crowd of people, but he looked at home during his solo song, so that was good. Yeah, he's just th- not that kind of wishy-washy, like, let's clap along to Hey Jude kind of guy, but he was doing it because everyone was doing it and he was just sort of he was standing right next to Jerry Seinfeld and it was just a very weird surreal thing to be watching yeah. and Jerry Seinfeld's not noted for his uh, subtlety his, per- <laughs> his personal boundary issues most notably recently with Kesha did you hear about that no uh, Kesha ran into him on, on the red carpet and she said I love you you I love your your comedy is, is so great it's it means so much to me your show is great can I hug you and Jerry looks at her and goes no and she goes, <laughs> she laughs at him and goes, no, really, can I hug you? And then he doubles down and goes, no, I'd rather not. <laughs> he reportedly didn't know who she was. I love that. I love that so much, James. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, um, why we love it, I think we've kind of gone over why we love it, but we're yeah. Beetlenuts. It's it's co- good to hear a Beatles song coming out of Jack's uh, repertoire on stage. And it's it's always fun to hear different versions of Beatles songs because, you know, obviously the Beatles aren't coming back, so all we get are McCartney's versions, which are essentially the same. So it's nice to hear variations yeah. on that. It's nice to hear Jack's type of variation where he'll meddle in a song in the middle, which you know, McCartney's not really prone to doing. I mean, he'll throw, I guess... No, he doesn't He'll do throw... Uh, 
Foxy into the mix occasionally, but that's pretty on cue. Um, yeah, he does it in a more calculated way, like uh, like you mentioned, Foxy Lady at the end of Let Me Roll It, and he also put like the coda of Hello Goodbye at the end to put it there and on his 89 tour. So he, he's done it, but he does it very rarely, and when he does it, he does it with very calculated precision. It's l- less on-the-fly stuff like Jack it's does. It's practiced, for sure. Um, yeah. So I really enjoy it for that. And I also enjoy it for Jack being on stage playing for President Obama because he deserves a little more spotlight, I think, even in the recent age than he gets. But I think that's just our bias. But it's nice to see him actually up there playing for not only one of my idols and heroes, Paul McCartney, but also for the president of the United States, which I think is pretty awesome. So, um, yes. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty good, pretty good cover song, wouldn't you say? Yes, James. Great pick. Hot pick. Hot pick. And uh, we're going to move right along here to our next song, Loving Cup. Ooh. I'm the man on the mountain that says, come on up. I'm the plowman in the valley with the place full of mud. Yes, I am fumbling and I know my sort of breaking my own rules here because Loving Cup, uh, the Rolling Stones cover song that I'm picking here was performed with the Rolling Stones, so it's really more of like a Jack guesting on it. But you know what? Jack sings enough on it where it felt like a cover, and whatever. It's our podcast. We can do what we want. <laughs> um, so this, uh, this cover version was recorded at the Beacon Theater in New York City on November 1st, 2006, and it was recorded with the Rolling Stones for their movie soundtrack to Shine a Light, hmm. which was a film directed by Martin Scorsese and was recorded over two nights at the Beacon. Uh, other special guest appearances include Buddy Guy and Christina Aguilera. This one was commercially made available on April 7th, 2008. The tune is track five on disc one of that soundtrack. So this is via Rolling Stone about how the song came about. White did not see the Stones live until the White Stripes opened two shows for them in 2002, by the way, which I did not know. That's awesome, yeah. Yeah. It's like describing the pyramids to someone who's never been there, White says, when asked what he feels in the middle of a hot guitar solo. A man after my own heart, Richards agrees, smiling. Rolling Stone asks them, Jack, what did you learn about the Stones when you opened for them? White says, how good they were. You could see the comfort level between them. In Keith's guitar playing and Ron's slide playing, it's impressive, man, when that confidence is exuded. Someone once told me when I first started playing, you get a lot more respect if you act like you own the joint. If you fumble around, you don't gain respect. We were just talking about that with Karen Nelson's performance mm. at the Greek, yeah. which we'll hear in our third woman segment coming up soon because time is a flat circle indeed this is from rolling stone how did you and mick choose loving cop as your duet uh i say it like that because that's how mick pronounces it and i find it adorable <laughs> this one's called loving cop uh white says 
Mick called me. I offered up six or seven songs, which were all shot down. <laughs> Factory Girl from Beggar's Banquet was talked about. Uh, another one was Shake Your Hips, from, which was a Slim uh, Harpo cover. On- and may have inspired the lyric in the Dead Weather song. Oh, Shake Your Hips Like Battleships. That's yeah. right. From Blue Blood Blues on mm-hmm. Sea of Cowards. Then he said, Loving Cup. That was great. Uh, for years at White Stripe shows, we played Loving Cup over the PA as the crowd was leaving. Ah. I just wanted to harmonize with Mick. I didn't necessarily want my own verse, but he said, take one. <laughs> was Exile on Main Street an important album for you? White, I didn't know much about Exile until Meg and I did the first White Stripes album. We covered Stop Breaking Down, but we did it from Robert Johnson. I didn't know it was on Exile. Aftermath and Beggar's Banquet were the Stones albums I listened to. Then someone told me the Stones do Stop Breaking Down too. My roommate at the time. Exile was his favorite album. He played it to me. So James, this goes all the way back to episode one of the podcast when we were talking about Stop Breaking Down and I said it is unclear which version he heard first. Was it Ah. the original recording or this one? Now we know... All these episodes later, that he never heard the Stones version until he already recorded the Robert Johnson version for the White Stripes debut album. What I want to know is, who's his roommate? <laughs> I don't know! I... <laughs> <laughs> to talk a little bit about the re- original recording, it was written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and produced by Jimmy Miller, uh, obviously made famous by the Rolling Stones, and released on the 1972 album Exile on Main Street. Originated as an outtake from Let It Bleed, my favorite Stones album. Exile's mine, specifically. Oh, nice. It was recorded in December 1971 at Los Angeles' Sunset Sound Studios. And uh, it was also notably a part of the Alan Klein lawsuit, which we also talked about on episode one of the podcast, where after Exile was released, uh, Alan Klein, who was famously the Beatles manager and the Rolling Stones manager before them, sued the Rolling Stones for breach of settlement because Loving Cup and four other songs were composed while they were recording Let It Bleed, which was technically under Klein's company, Abco. Mm -hmm. So that's just a little bit of another Beatle-y tidbit there. Loving Cup closes the first half of Exile on Main Street, and this is via Song Facts. A Loving Cup is a kind of trophy. It's one of those big ones that's shaped like a heart with handles on the sides, and it's usually given for big wins at sporting events. So this ballad uses the cup to represent a loving relationship. So that's kind of an interesting... I I never knew what Loving Cup was referring to. (laughs) I still don't. It's a sex thing, Jim. Um, 
So I love this cover. Again, I get that I'm bending some of my own rules by including this in the list, but Jack's presence on this song is so prominent and it has all of the hallmarks of a cover. Even though the Stones actually play on it, I felt I wanted to include it here. Um, this was actually the first time I'd ever heard the song when I picked up the soundtrack to Shine a Light in 2008 during my 2008 deep dive into the Rolling Stones. I came out of the other side of that deep dive loving a lot of albums, but this song in particular was a standout. I just went through and listened to every Rolling Stones album in 2008 and got really, really into it. Mm -hmm. Because growing up, James, we were Beatle people, and we didn't have a lot of exposure to the Stones, only really exposure as it related to the Beatles. So I didn't really know how good they were until I, you know, really took a dive. Aside from that any exposure that maybe our parents had to the stones which speaking of which i only now am realizing that um mom gave me one of her shirts when i was little a rolling stones shirt that she probably oh, got yeah. at that concert ah yeah so that's right i used to wear that shirt all the time it was probably from that concert that's funny anyway that's crazy our mother d- detailed her rolling stones concert escapades during our Van Lee Rose episode. I believe that's episode 32. So you can go and listen to that one. But this song made a big impression on me, not only because of Jack's presence on it, but because it was oddly tender for the Stones. It's still got that bad boy things that Stone Stones tunes tend to have, but it's got a gentleness to it that Jack actually compliments well in the live cut of it. So this one was a big standout for me. And to be honest, Christina Aguilera and them duetting on Live With Me mm-hmm. is another one that stood out to me because she pours her heart and soul into that song. And I, obviously Christina Aguilera as an artist carries with it certain baggage, but she was at this time on this, I'm going to be a respected musician kick that I really, really respected. <laughs> and she covered Mother by John Lennon, and she was putting out all these really interesting Motown-esque type songs that are actually legitimately good. So not that I'm the biggest Christina Aguilera fan of the universe, but to her credit, she was doing her homework and being immersed in the history of music and not just sort of the periphery of pop. Which is a key feature in uh, liking Jack White, is knowing your history. Right, yeah. That's my second pick. Hit me with yours, buddy. So my next pick was actually a close call. I had two songs that I wanted to pick. The one that I actually picked and the the first song that I wanted to pick, but uh, didn't because it was kind of a throwaway interstitial song that he kind of plugged into another song, was Gin and Juice by Snoop Dogg. Did he really? He covered Gin and Juice at the Fabulous Fox Theater in St. Louis, Missouri on July 20th, 2014. I wanted to find a version of this song, and I really couldn't. So I decided it wasn't worth any of it, and because it was kind of a throwaway song and more of a gag than anything to me, I was going to go with an actual song that I love that he covered, which was Isis. Love it. Yeah. I married Isis on the fifth day of May, but I could not hold on to her. So I cut off my hair and I rolled straight away to the unknown country where I could not go wrong. I came to a high place of darkness and light. The body line ran through the center of a town. I hitched up my pony to a post on the right. But it threw a long Down. Well, a man in the 
I think we've we've been listening to this cover for a long time, but the original recording was written by Bob Dylan and Jacques Levy. It was produced by Don DeVito, and it was made famous by Bob Dylan off of his album Desire, which was released on January 5th, 1976. One of my favorite uh, Bob Dylan (laughs) albums, one of Paul's two, apparently, uh, second only to Blood on the Tracks. (laughs) And Isis is one of my go-to songs on Desire, along with Hurricane, which is also on there. Yeah. Um, Both of those are brilliant songs. Yes, and Greg Pogue went into the story of Hurricane to me, and it is—it's all in Bob Dylan's song, but it is uh, astounding this this, this story. But anyway, so the song features uh, Dylan on vocals, piano, and harmonica, as well as Scarly Rivera on violin, Rob Stoner on bass, and Howie Wyeth on drums. For writing the song via Wikipedia, as as much as we can trust that, the song was written and recorded during a time of separation and reunion in Dylan's own marriage. Consequently, for fans and critics, the temptation to interpret it as an allegory of Dylan's own marital difficulties is irresistible, especially since the Desire album contains the song Sarah, which is openly about their marriage and separation. Dylan was known to include autobiographical hints in his previous songs, Isis draws upon mythological themes of a male hero separating from his wife, going on adventures, and returning to the marriage, going back to the Odyssey. The song is a fast three-quarter time, and it is uh, in the key of B-flat major. The arrangement is based on rhythm chords played on acoustic piano, accompanied by bass, guitar, drums, and violin. The harmonic progression consists of an ostinato. The Interesting thing about Isis is the lyrics are all verses. There's not actually a chorus in the song, and the melody is in the style of like a, a folk song, like most Dylan songs are. It's kind of a droning song. It goes on and on and on and on for like about four minutes, and I do love this song. It took a long time for it to grow on me, like the Dylan version. And it is kind of enigmatic of what Dylan's writing is, which is telling a story in, in song form but not following any rules really mm-hmm. I was thinking about turquoise I was thinking about gold I was thinking about diamonds and the world's biggest necklace as we rode through the canyons through the devilish cold I was thinking about Isis as she thought I was so The first songs that opened up Dylan for me, hearing this song for the first time, uh, I forget who recommended it to me, but I was in college and I didn't really understand Dylan up to that point. But for some reason, when I heard this one, it just cracked the door open and suddenly I kind of got what the appeal of Dylan was and was able to find my path to the, the albums I really loved from there. Yeah, Isis was, because you found it, you gave it to me and, and I found it. Uh, and bought desire and all that and and that opened it up for me too i think we we both had a dylan friend 
and yeah. <laughs> uh, Andy Hood, what's up? But he was as obsessed with Dylan as I am of Jack White and the Beatles, and he was very happy to know that I was a fan of Desire. Uh, so the the covered version was played by the White Stripes at the Roskglide Festival in Denmark in 2002. They played it a bunch, but the I think it's Roskilde. Yeah, I don't know how it's pronounced, but you're, you're Roskilde. But this festival here is the one that I think we got first, uh, even though they did they do play this song like a lot. I think even Jack played it solo as well. Yeah. I also have heard story of him playing it with Brendan. That's right. Uh, he plays with the Bricks. Uh, and Brendan knew all the lyrics and Jack was impressed. It was released on broadcast radio and then it's been bootlegged since then, which I think is how me and you have found it, Paul, which was via assorted bootleg CDs and, and albums because we've been listening to this cover for a while. Yeah. Uh, via Ultimate Classic Rock, Bob Dylan's original version of Isis from 1976's Desire is seven minutes of unraveling. Oh man, it's seven minutes. Holy crap. <laughs> of unraveling storytelling, chaotic band shuffling, and words that are more spit than sung. The White Stripes, who covered it in concert in 2002, strip it to less than four minutes and pull back on the unwieldiness and make Dylan's version seem like a tightrope walk. White's guitar stabs are mighty piercing, though. I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, he definitely um, he has his White Stripe guitar flair to it, where he's still on that really squealy constantly kick constantly squealing that guitar oh yeah oh he's squealing baby <laughs> via rock the body electric like a pig <laughs> <laughs> via rock the body electric.com woof jack white and bob dylan are kindred spirits artists and lovers of music deception women's and life okay <laughs> all right uh, they seem melted from the same block of ice and fire. Jack can instantly t- fall into Dylan's world while keeping his own artistic sensibilities and crushing riffs. And Dylan paid the ultimate compliment by playing the White Stripes tune Ball on a Biscuit with White in Detroit as an encore a few years back. The two are kin, and needless to say, White enlivens this Western tale of greed and backstabbing with power as Meg stomps along. I'm glad he included mm. Meg. Somebody had to. Yeah. <laughs> Again, from rockthebodyelectric.com. Jack eliminates the three cadaver-stealing verses from the song, but by doing so, surprisingly tightens the narrative to jewels and fleeting love. Shortening the story has made it simpler and yet does nothing to illuminate the mystery, which is part of the charm. The live version from London in 01 is representative of the versions the band did when they played together. Simple, driving, electric. Indeed. He said 01, but... Oh, I guess that was in London 01. This was in Denmark, the one we know. Right, yeah. So they played it in that 2001-2002 era pretty heavily. Yeah. And um, again, I think I I went over why we like this song so much, but it was one of the first covers I think we had heard from Jack that were not like album-wise. Like we, We didn't go to any of his shows at this point, and so hearing him cover new songs was always interesting. It was one of the first bootleg songs I had gotten my hands on. And uh, it's it was different than anything he had ever done before. Bob Dylan's song is, you know, not alien to him. He did One More Cup of Coffee, but, you know, One More Cup of Coffee has an actual, like a normal song construction, whereas Isis doesn't. So, I don't know. I like it because it's different, mostly, and I like it because, at this point, because I really like Bob Dylan's version of the song, and I, I think Jack does it justice. I think he does a, a good job covering it. By the way, James, One More Cup of Coffee, also from Desire. Mm, mm-hmm. That's true. 
It's also got great songs on it. Desire's got Mozambique and all those songs on it. It's, it's just a great album. Listen to Desire. Oh, yeah. That was a song. Uh, Elliot was going to Mozambique uh, when he was in the Marines to guard medical supplies. Oh. And so I sent him that song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, James, that was another great selection, and we are just going to wrap it up here with one last song. And I picked what quickly became a favorite of mine, A Child of a Few Hours is Burning to Death. Nice. This one I got to know when, James, you did your episode, I believe it's episode nine, which Oof. was uh, our Whorehound analysis and review. It was either nine or 11. I don't remember which. But it was illuminating to me because I had never heard it before. The uh, the Dead Weather do actually a studio version of this, but it was the live version I heard for the first time. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the original version. It was written by Bob Markley and Ron Morgan and made famous by the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. Uh, it was released on their Volume 3, A Child's Guide to Good and Evil album in July of 1968. It's got uh, Bob Markley on backing vocals, spoken word, tambourine, percussion, and the majority of the songwriting. This is referring to the album. Sean Harris on lead vocals and bass guitar. Ron Morgan on lead guitar, sitar, and backing vocals. Hal Blaine on drums and was produced by Markley and Jimmy Bowen. So the West Coast pop art band formed in L.A. in 65, riffing on Birds-esque folk, but infused it with even more psychedelic acid rock experimentation. Uh, They're classified as avant-garde in most places. They released their first record in 1966 and gained notoriety for their elaborate acid-fueled light shows. Mm. Their rep and first album led to a signing by Reprise Records, which they released three albums with, culminating in this album considered their most realized effort. Via this album's CD booklet, biographer Tim Forster described the album as bizarre fusion of innocence and malice, heavily affected by the, quote, exuberance of the British invasion, folk rock, and flower power era being, quote, swept away in a tide of bad drugs, paranoia, and protest. Via the risingstorm.net, Ron Morgan's crackling electric sitar turns up on the two otherwise unrelated ritual numbers the band explores such intriguing topics as flowers, beads, and babies. Morgan (laughs) really does seem to have the band's secret weapon at this point, his spidery guitar lines, such as those dancing behind the twisted black humor of a child a few hours is burning to death.
These are psychedelic classics, James. Ah. They were recorded for Volume 3 in early 1968 with Markley and Jimmy Bone producing, and this guy Morgan here was instrumental in creating the psychedelic sound effects that adorn much of the album's tracks. In an interview, Morgan's younger brother Robert recalled how Morgan provided his contributions to the album. Ron could really put on his guitar antics. He would use some very unusual effects. He had a magnetone which Sears Roebuck made for accordions, and it had a wide organ type of sound. He would also use a Leslie speaker and a lot of Vox equipment, amps, and 12 strings because the group were sponsored by them for a little while. <laughs> uh, the album bombed and Reprise dropped them and the band broke up in 1970, a mere five years after getting together. Mm. James, um, the psychedelic era involved a lot of acid. And... Um, while you're tripping on acid, you're prone to see many things in your visions, James. Right. Oh, yeah. No, you're prone to seeing lots of things, Paul. You can see uh, spooky ghosts. Mm-hmm. Oh, spooky ghosts, other spooky things, yeah. which is Leprechauns goblins. And dancing skellingmans. Oh, skellingmans. Yeah. Skeletons. D- dancing skellingmans. And those uh, are consistent of uh, bones, James. Oh, yeah, they're consistent of. James, would you like to tell the people what Rag and Bone is? I would love to tell the people what Rag and Bone is, Paul. Rag and Bone is when we find something weird or unusual when our research doesn't necessarily have to be about Jack White, but usually it is. And we include it here in this podcast, in this segment that we like to call Rag and Bone. This Rag and Bone, James, has a main Rag and Bone and then two sub Rag and Bones. Uh, Mm. But the main Rag and Bone, James, is how this guy Markley wound up dying. Oh, Yeah, so this guy, Bob Markley, was sort of the driving force behind the West Coast pop art experimental band, and James, he had quite a reputation as a ladies' man. Oh. So, in uh, in Los Angeles, he's known as this sort of playboy kind of guy, and he wound up throwing all of these elaborate 60s and early 70s, like, orgies in his house, and... He had a lot of happenings going on, uh, fueled with a lot of drugs. And then uh, two underage women wound up sneaking their way into one of those orgies, uh, which caused this guy to uh, be hunted by the police for the rest of his life. And he spent the remainder of his days evading arrest. Oh, my God. So he wound up bouncing around from place to place and wound up in a lot of different locations. But uh, the, the final location he wound up on was a place near Las Vegas, Nevada. So this is via that Wikipedia article that I was pulling from for this West Coast pop art experimental band, which was amazing. Apparently, Bob had been uh, sitting in a rowing boat on a lake near Las Vegas and he was living like a recluse. It got loosed from its moorings, and he drifted off alone for about a day and a half. He was already pretty messed up, and apparently because of all of the drugs he had taken, he was completely incapacitated and didn't know how to get back to shore. They found him a day and a half later so badly dehydrated that he wound up being brain dead and they put him on life support unable to speak or think he then died 
almost a decade later in a hospital in California after having been on life support for oh, for the better part of 10 years. Holy sh**. So he got super messed up on a bunch of drugs, got in a rowboat, it got loose from its moorings, and they found him a day and a half later completely just gone. Holy crap. That is uh, one reason not to get high on a boat. Yeah. Uh, the lake was probably like a mile long. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know how to get back, man. <laughs> Pretty thirsty, <laughs> though. This acid is making me thirsty. <laughs> These acid tabs are making me thirsty. It's very sad. But he was also it's such a an underage yeah. girl, so it's it's fine. Um, there you go. James, the two sub rag and bones here, which are kind of <laughs> funny, but not necessarily rag and bones, are the guy that did the album artwork for this album that the song is on also did the artwork for Magical Mystery Tour. Whoa, that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, he was Sean, a well-known psychedelic artist, but it, so it kind of tracks, but still... Did he get yeah. on a rowboat? John von Hammersfeld, who also did Exile on Main Street. Anyway, hmm. uh, and also Sean Lennon talked about this group in Rolling Stone and placed them on a list of all-time psychedelic album classics, describing them as really out there. They almost make Frank Zappa seem mainstream. Oof. Uh, that's been a rag and It's a rag and Look at all this. So the cover I'm pulling from here is from the live concert privé in 2009. You can see the full thing on YouTube. It's really cool. It's from the Dead Weathers first concert tour, and it was recorded on September 17th, 2009. Privé in French means private, so this is translated to a private concert. It looks like a smaller theater shot mostly in black and white with a tiny hint of desaturated color here and there. And there couldn't have been more than 100, 200 people in the crowd. Hmm. The concert opened with 60 feet tall, Treat Me Like Your Mother, So Far From Your Weapon, and then into this one. And uh, there's actually a really cool interview after the show. And at the end of the interview, Jack White is making fun of Allison Mosshart for being young, uh, saying that he quit playing drums live before Allison was born. And then he started... <laughs> And then he started saying that they were going to play her graduation next week. <laughs> I think Allison was born the year I quit playing drums. What? So um, <laughs> it's nice to have that come together at her graduation party. <laughs> the Dead Weather's playing Can her I'm graduation real? next week. So. Can I brown my friends? <laughs> yes. Not that Bobby. <laughs> I don't trust that kid. <laughs> he likes to watch fire. Really? <laughs> ah! <laughs> Referring to the lyric in the song, uh, there's a studio version of this, which is the B-side of the Cut Like a Buffalo single released on October 26, 2009. It's a really great cover. This song, uh, I had never heard of the West Coast pop art experimental band before hearing the Dead Weather do it. So they opened up this whole new avenue for me musically with just this one cover. That's the kind of magic that a good cover song will do. It will inspire you to find out more about where it came from and why your favorite artists chose to do it themselves. And I, I did. I wound up finding all of their albums and listening to all their albums, the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. And they're all really good. Volume 3 is a little better than the others, but they're all basically pretty good. 
though there is a studio take, I first heard the song live while watching this extended concert. Uh, James, that's back when we were we were talking about it. It was like in the Dodge and Burn era. It came out, and I was on a pretty heavy dead weather kick. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're normally not 100% my favorite, but when I'm in the mood, I won't let them go. And in the end, I think the live cut, particularly from this show, has a lot more energy than the studio take. The dead weather give this song much-needed injection of aggression. Uh, the West Coast pop art experimental band has a lot of that in their music, but it's usually in an undercurrent kind of way, more bubbling under the surface. Uh, the dead weather don't bubble under the surface. They're an eruption from the surface. Ah. So it's cool to hear the song taken to its logical end by a band particularly suited for the task. Agreed. I still haven't really dove into uh, the, the West Coast pop art psychedelic experimental band experimental experience. Um <laughs> But I look forward to doing it if any, everybody on YouTube's comment section is being truthful to me on the uh, Dead Weather cover. This version is crap, and the original is the best. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go uh, on. No, they're different. I'm um, joking. But, the, uh, no, no, no. I know what you're, I know what you're saying, I, but I kind of like both for different reasons, you know? Yeah. Both are interesting. Uh, I have actually heard the original version, and I, I do like it. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think the Dead Weather did a good job with it, so... All right, James, and now we're going to kick it to our third woman for this week. Let's kick it. We'd like to welcome our third woman for this week, Susanna Roundtree. Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hi, Susanna. Hi, James. Susanna, (laughs) you do the intros and outros of our program, and you were last on when we did our year in review episode where you talked about the Muppets. And we'd like to welcome you back. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. It's uh, good to be back with you guys again talking about music. Yeah. And so this week we are talking about our fell in love with the show segment, James. Would you like to explain to the people what that segment means? I would love to, Paul. Fell in love with the show is when one of us goes out into the world, into the wild, if you will, and we collect ourselves some kind of wild show where we get to report back our findings like some kind of... David Attenborough's. <laughs> like, journalists. Yes. I think what James is desperately trying to say here is that we go see shows sometimes, and they uh, often involve Jack White-related acts. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about the time Susanna and I, last Saturday, I believe it was June the 3rd, we saw Miss Karen Elson at the Greek Theater. Ooh. Yes, we did. Well, that's very exciting. Karen Elson... So if you're listening to the show, you probably know who Karen Nelson is, but for those who don't, she is uh, Jack White's ex-wife. She's a model. They were married in the Amazon at the Fork of Three Rivers. Because, of course. Right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, back in 2005 during the Get Behind Me Satan tour, and that show, I believe even that particular leg of the tour is chronicled in the Under Amazonian Lights DVD, James. And album. Yeah, I believe so. Callie, if we're wrong, you can tell us. But um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the, the same tour. Right. Now, about four years into their marriage, four to five years into their marriage, Karen started a singing career and a songwriting career, which she apparently did in secret in their home. I believe I read an interview that said that she had squirrels herself away in the closet writing songs and that sounds a little weird but also very consistent with how that house must run well paul when problems overwhelm us and sadness smothers us yeah right we have to Um, squirrel ourselves away like little acorns in a closet 
Uh, so anyway, Jack produced and played on and offered up his bandmates to her first LP release, which was The Ghost Who Walks. And that album was a third-man release with a lot of hoopla, you might say, a lot of touring, even including people such as uh, Olivia Jean and her touring band. Since that album came out, Karen has released a follow-up album on a different label called Double Roses, James. Yes, and I had heard about it. I haven't listened to it yet, but... uh... I like Karen's stuff, so uh, I, I'm sure I'd enjoy it. I picked this one up just because, you know, I'm not super in love with Karen's stuff, but I figure, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what that sounds like without all the jack all over it, you know what I mean? That sounds dirty. It does. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it does sound very dirty, and very fittingly, it was this album was released on the Hot Records Limited label. Gross. This past April the 7th. So anyway, when I found out that she was, uh, I, I think the album's all right. You know, there's some tracks on it that I do enjoy. The eponymous track, Double Roses, is quite good. You said I've turned cold now. Winter has come in. that I find kind of interesting. She claims this one is not a divorce album, although a lot of the subject matter does seem to deal with that. And she was certainly out all over the press talking about how she was adamant that it wasn't a divorce album. So, you know, who really knows? Yeah. I, uh, you know. Some of that was definitely thrust upon her, though, in that Gross. people... <laughs> in that um, a lot of news outlets wanted to make that their story, so they were constantly asking her about right. that. Right. So I feel like a lot of it was not necessarily her doing in the music because, you know, in talking about the album, they're like bringing up Jack White, even though he has nothing to do with the album necessarily. Right. But right, right, right. Well, this is an interesting question because we have already been conditioned here. But Susanna, this was your first time listening to Karen Elson. Yes. Did you think that she had the musical chops? How did you feel about her music? When, well, when you saw uh, it? it's really hard to make a generalization about someone's talent based on only one live performance, especially when that live performance uh, is maybe not quite a sticking of the landing, which I think is what happened unfortunately for her and there's a couple of reactions i got going on the one is that it is a little bit unfortunate that she will probably never be respected as a musician in her own right because of her association with jack because people will Mm -hmm. always say that she either got the career started as a way to make money because of what he was doing or it was like her plan all along or just like she'll never be able to separate from that and that's unfortunate yeah that's a tough thing to 
dance around, you know? Yeah, and then, I mean, the other thing is that she was very clearly uncomfortable during her performance. Like, very clearly uncomfortable. And then she kind of made it worse by talking about it in a way that wasn't funny at all. Yeah, Mm. she kept, in between every song, she would say things like, Oh, and here's another upbeat, happy number from me. Bet you guys are ready for Ryan Adams to come on. Yeah, it was it, it's Ugh. it was just everything that you're ever told about stand-up comedy or performance or about faking it till you make it. Like I know she's British. For listeners who don't know, I'm British. My father's British. I grew up in England. I didn't live in America until I was an adult. So I have enough going on to feel comfortable saying that is that is my primary culture. I get the self-effacing thing but i think even when you come from a culture where that's hugely important to being considered a polite human being i think even then performers know that you can't do that right and you you just can't let people see that it's going badly because then that's all they'll see yeah she kept drawing attention to it yeah and you know it wasn't as though her performances were bad i just think she came across as self-conscious yeah well this that's her performance so and every single other person in her band looked like they were just really really good at what they were doing Mm -hmm. and she i don't know whether it was her nervousness or what else that's just not the same vibe that i got from her her music every time she played a song i thought oh that reminds me of mm-hmm. and another song came to mind so i think that's pretty normal for someone who's really kind of finding their artistic voice and i don't think that counts as a negative against her i just don't think she's i don't think she's found her voice yet and it doesn't sound like she's comfortable with where she is so she's either going to stay in that uncomfortable area for herself for a while or sh- her next album is going to be really good and she's going to learn and grow from it or she's going to give up one of those things is going to happen. What, how would you gauge the crowd, though? Because was that maybe partially responsible? Was it maybe? Oh, yeah. I mean, Ryan... like this was a this was a concert where it was still she was opening. It's summer. It's Los Angeles. So it was still light outside. So she could see that the stadium wasn't even half full. And that's mm. that's a real, I'm sure, stab in the gut. But if you're a performing professional, you know that if that happens, you make that the best show for the people who showed up. You know, you don't feel sorry for yourself you do the job that's in front of you and you have to put a smile on it you just have to the crowd was pretty supportive though okay they were they were shouting we love you karen and and i i think she needed to hear that but it's a shame that she needed to hear that because she you know as Susanna was saying you really just shouldn't draw attention to it like that although i mean it just seemed like nerves how stiff was her upper lip She's not that kind of she's not that kind of kind of woman. <laughs> Stiffer upper lipped people are the people who never let you see the whites of their eyes. 
Ah. You know, like, those are the people who would never let you know if they were having a hard time. They'd be the people... That's the milkman who's delivering milk in uh, a bombed-out part of London after a night raid. <laughs> well, if you want to know the rest of the tale, you can go and ask the milkman. Uh, I Sorry, I have to make yeah. the joke. But yeah, I get... <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, she's an opener, so that plays into it. It was a Ryan Adams crowd, so we're talking you know late 20s to early 40s white males in polos and that kind of a crowd uh, i don't know if we were at the same concert i can <laughs> see that same same maybe, maybe i'm just conflating mike jositis with i think you are everyone in the crowd <laughs> i think you are i like i i thought there was a good amount of ethnic and gender diversity in the crowd i don't think there was any particularly young people there Okay. Yeah, they they were they definitely skewed older. Yeah, you're you're right about that. Did you notice anybody with any Jack White or White Stripes paraphernalia or anything like that? Just Paul. It was just me. <laughs> well, <laughs> she saw Paul and she got very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a type of show where people were there to see Karen Nelson. People were there to see Ryan Adams. Mm. And to his credit, he was very supportive of her and even brought her on during his set. Uh, where they duetted on the song Come Pick Me Up. I wish you would Come pick me up Take me out F*** me up Steal my records Screw all my friends They're all full of sh- smile on your face and then do it again you know he is an interesting one because he's from that that early indie rock garage kind of era he was at least one of the people at the forefront in fact i read an article recently talking about how he was the one who introduced heroin to the strokes uh, which I found to be kind of an interesting allegation, which I'm not sure is true or not, but I don't, I kind of don't care because I sort of love that idea. But um, I, I last saw him about ten years ago on his on his Cold Roses tour, and he was uh, he was great then, and he opened with two Cold Roses songs uh, now, and so it was good to see him too. But yeah, this was a crowd that was out to see him for sure. I just think, I, I, and I don't mean to be overly critical of her i just think if you want to be any kind of in the public eye career you have to believe in yourself you have to and if you don't believe in yourself and you're not confident or comfortable what you're doing why are you doing it like why would you do that to yourself why is that your choice for a career if it's something that you don't enjoy yeah I mean, we all have bad days, too. Maybe it was just a, a rough day. Maybe she read something in the press. Who knows? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I wouldn't say it was a particularly bad performance. She just looked visibly nervous, I think is what we're trying to get at here. But she had a good set. She played all songs from Double Roses, except for The Ghost Who Walks. She did play that.
that was the only one from that first LP that she played. You could definitely tell the difference between the songs that came out of the Jack White Machine and songs that didn't. Um, mm. Because all the songs that come out of the Jack White Machine have a, have a similar stamp on them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I, I'm sure there are people who would feel like that maybe flattening out. No, no, no. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. He's got a style that's very pervasive. Yeah, so I, I think there's an argument to be said for her finding her own voice, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and and that that's a process that's happening currently for her. It's interesting. She's finding her own voice. She the only artist that's a holdover from the Jack era on Double Roses, James, is Laura Marling, who did a Blue Series single with uh, Third Man years ago, back when Karen was very active, and they they clearly hit it off. Laura's another English folk singer, so maybe that's kind of more where it lands, but I have to believe that they met during that era. But anyway, I feel like that, her voice, you know, she she does Donovan covers for Christ's sake. I think she's like, she's just trying to lean into that folky singer type of deal. And Susanna and I were remarking during the show that it was reminding us a little of like Lilith Fair, like her songs were feeling a little Sarah McLaughlin-y. I think Sarah McLaughlin was more what you were pulling. I think I was pulling a little Nirvana. Not necessarily like the melodic patterns, but just some of the, I guess, the feel, the taste to the music was coming out very Nirvana. On a side note, you know who I'd really like to see Jack White collaborate with? Who's that? Ani. DeFranco? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. She had this this big like um, this big like hook into the folk scene for a while there in the nineties. Yeah, and uh, she really appreciated that sort of history and that culture, and she did some work with that. And you know, it seems like it's an overlap. Yes, <laughs> that's a yeah. That would be awesome. They probably have crossed paths at some point. I feel like because yeah. they both do, like you said, the folk circuit, or at mm-hmm. least have done the folk circuit. Yeah, I'll have so. to look that up. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe that's a smell of fact for a future episode or something. But yeah, so the uh, the as far as like merch goes, I was hoping to sort of pick up a Karen Elson shirt or something, and there was nothing for sale except for her two albums. Uh, so the vinyl was there for the Ghost Who Walks and for Double Roses. So maybe she's still sort of getting a handle on how to market herself now that she's sort of indie. And without Third Man there to pour every resource into her which is clearly what Jack was doing, you could argue, because she was his wife, but he takes his third-man recording artist very seriously, and he doesn't do anything half-assed. And so when they put out Ghost Who Walks, they just put out so much stuff. So here's a question, because you guys both know the answer to this question more than I would. Uh, Is this something she always wanted to do, or did Jack want her to do it? Did she get roped in because it was the way he was going? He has in the past sort of got spouses sort of caught up in his wake as he's barreled <laughs> along towards this musical career. Yeah, yeah. This is abnormal in that it's a spouse who she is one of the very few people who he has been with that isn't immediately musical, or at least, you know, that wasn't their main career path. And I feel like he... Except for Meg when she first started. Well, yeah, that's true. That is very true. He might have seen a bit of Meg in there, possibly. It, it's possible. I think she was inspired to start her musical career by him. And this is going without any research. So, I, you know, this is purely speculation on my part. But I feel like she was nudged in that direction by being involved with him. But I do mm-hmm. think that she had the, you know, musical talent already or was thinking about it. And Jack kind of possibly said, go for it. But 
again, speculation. I've read a few interviews where she talks about having played and written songs for a long time, but it wasn't until she got together with Jack that she started seriously doing it or seriously making an attempt. And I have to give it to her that, hey, if you find yourself in that situation and you're married to a guy who's a record mogul, I think it's fair to say, and you have all these resources at your disposal and it's something that you've been interested in doing, why wouldn't you take advantage of that? Why wouldn't you push? I mean, I, I would in that instance. And and you know that Jack was probably supportive of it because he's typically supportive of women in music and he's also supportive of the people around him in music so long as you don't cross him in some weird way. So I have a funny feeling it was probably just a mix of desire and opportunity probably skewing a little more in the opportunity direction. I don't think he pushed her. You talked about it sounding weird that she would like lock herself in a closet and write songs and that these they had kids together, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so like when you say that sounds weird, I'm just thinking of like a woman who has two kids to look after who has like maybe yeah. 5 <laughs> minutes to herself and quiet for like the first time in a week and goes into the walk-in closet, <laughs> which is not a weird thing to go inside of and just closes the door and turns off everything for a minute and just does whatever creative thing she needs to do to get I mean like there's many 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 people that have incredibly frantic lives that like when they have 5 minutes of silence then they can be extremely creative and they really need that for an outlet. So I don't think that situation is maybe as weird as it might have been coming across, especially I think for people who are caregivers of children, especially if they are primary caregivers, which I have no idea if she was. I'm just suggesting that as an alternative narrative yes to, to the one where she's like sort of sneaking off like it's a dirty little <laughs> masturbation in a closet that she's doing uh, it, that's a fantastic point and one i hadn't considered i happen to be on the arc of a gigantic loretta lynn kick right now and well she is jack's music mom right <laughs> but loretta did that with kids in the house and you know yeah you, you have to believe that she would have probably wanted some peace and quiet like she talks about going and writing songs in trees and stuff and yeah my favorite author uh was for all intents and purposes was a single mother with i think four or five kids who uh the same thing like she she would write parts of her books in between getting customers at pancake houses and like while the kids were washing their hair and stuff like that and she put out a book a year for 20 years we can give and- a plug to robin hobb let's Robin Hobb is the best fantasy author that's ever existed. I will fight anybody who disagrees. Read Assassin's Apprentice and then read her whole series in order. She's been on the New York Times bestseller list like with almost every single book from that series and it's completely well-deserved and they're really well-written and it's it, it's just, it's amazing. But I mean, that's a whole other conversation though and only one that I know from the the book industry is that there's a lot of male writers that talk about how they, oh, I write for 10 hours a day or 14 hours a day, and then I make sure I take a break to see my kids for two hours. And meanwhile, somebody else is making sure those kids are not pooping on the floor and, you know, (laughs) doing their homework and doing all the things that you have to do to make sure that your children aren't feral or neglected and growing up healthy. But oftentimes with female creators, you find that they're like, well, no, I didn't write 14 hours a day, I, or oh, I didn't make music for 14 hours a day. I made it when I had the few bare seconds I had to because I'm the caregiver, mm. you know, because I'm the... And I'm not saying that there aren't men in that position. There definitely, definitely are. But I find that it's... If you listen to people talk about how their work ethic is, and if it's people with children, often the men will say that someone else is taking care of their children most of the time and they take breaks to see them. And often women will say, I do the work 
while there's a moment in between taking care of the children. So it's a different, just from anecdotally, I think that can be really relevant to the way men and women's careers evolve differently. And then it becomes immediately as well a conversation of, well, if her energy is, is put into raising the children and his main energy is put into running this music empire, then absolutely, of course, it makes sense that he would use what's at his advantage to help her because she's doing a duty that helps the family that they are a family unit of. Mm-hmm. If they're a team, that's not nepotism. You know, that's them being a team. That's yeah. she's she's giving a resource to him by taking care of his children. He should equally be able to give a resource to her and help her develop her music career. And that shouldn't be seen as something that's like shameful or unfair or a, like a cheat for her in being a musician. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard a better defense uh, than that. It's a totally fair assessment of the situation. Indeed. So, uh, well, on that note, uh, well, uh, Suzanne, I'll, we'll leave with this. Uh, would you say you wound up enjoying the show, or would you say you wound up thinking of it more as a sort of a curiosity and where you'd like to see it from here? Um, I think I would maybe watch her career from an armchair for a little while before going to see a live show again, just because she, it was... She didn't light your fire. She made me uncomfortable by how uncomfortable she was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's not what anyone goes to a concert for. Right. I had a similar experience, although I'm happy I saw her because I missed all that ghost to walk stuff. And so that was kind of my thinking here. I was like, oh, yeah, well, I've never seen her. And so that, that could be kind of interesting. So, yeah, I don't know if I would rush out to see you another one again, but um, yeah, I'll probably pick up the next record. You know, yeah. why not? I'm still interested in seeing her. I have interest in seeing the journey she goes on from here. Mm. I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't give her a second chance. I just I think what you're what you're getting at is you got to pay the dues if you want to sing the blues. And you know it don't come easy. Ah, uh, on that note, <laughs> I can think of no finer one. Susanna, thank you for being on the show again. This was a awesome conversation. Really, a lot of food for thought here. Really, really cool. Do you uh, do you have anything now? You did a couple animated films in the past couple months. Do you want to do you want to plug those for the listeners and where they can find oh, those? Oh, sure. Um, I actually have done a couple of sort of animated and live action music videos that are available on my Vimeo channel, which is Vimeo slash Suzanimated S U Z A N I M A T E D at Suze Animated, all one word. And there's a good piece up there that's animated to Smoke City's Mr. Gorgeous and Miss Curvaceous, which is an old 90s bossa nova stoner song. <laughs> um, and a few other things going on there. And yeah, if you're interested in that sort of thing, I would love uh, a little feedback if anyone has any opinions. And it is amazing. So go check that out, please. Oh, thank you so much. And you could find Susanna on Tumblr and Twitter and like the art of Susanna Roundtree on Facebook and all that good stuff. And Susanna, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been excellent. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. Thanks, Susanna. Thank you. All right, back to the show. James, that was a wonderful episode. I learned so much. Uh, We talked about a lot of great tracks tonight. Yeah, I learned way more than I needed to know about other people's songs. I loved it. It was yeah, great. We learned a lot. We laughed a lot. We loved a lot. We lived. We lived a lot. We lived a lot. And, you know, speaking of love. Live, laugh, live. We got some shout outs to give. James, we have some new listeners for the show. This is an all Twitter edition. You want to uh, you want to tackle these? I'd love to tackle these tweets. Thank you to 
John Moses. Pew, pew, pew. Thank you to Joe Cooley. Pew, 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 pew. Thank you to Hannah Piper. Pew. Thank you to Jeff Van Schingel. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Pew, pew, pew. Thank you to at Kerfuffle16. At Kerfuffle16, at Kerfuffle you went and liked just about everything we did. And so if you're listening to this, thank you. That was lovely. Yes. And uh, thank you to at Tankless117. Thank you, at Tankless. No tanks over there. Thank you also to Job Matthews, liking things like it's his job. And also, Rebecca Moran. Thank you so much, Rebecca Moran. We'd also like to thank uh, our regular listeners, people who are with the show week in, week out. We have Me Oh My on Twitter. Oh, oh me, oh my. That's the name. That's the that's, thing. That's what the... should we call this person? Um. Oh, me, oh my. Amy Hart, the heart of the operation. Thank you, Amy. And we have... Adrian King, the punk rock queen. We've got Callie Durga, our third woman always. We have Jeremy Riles keeping us on the rails. We've got S.A. Franco. You're on Twitter. I assume that's part or maybe initials associated with your name. I don't know who you are, but you're great. <laughs> David Poe. 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 Eileen Corsano, we see you over there, Eileen. We got Andre Ice Cold Lyman, and last but not least, we have the bones of the operation, Kate McCoy. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show and for continually giving us uh, lots of love online. You can find us online. Oh, me. Oh, oh my. Oh, God. That'll Before be the new one. It'll the be... little lady walks by. Yeah, we got a Herman's Hermit reference for me oh my that's what we'll do who <laughs> it's herman's hermits what it's it's one of those permit yeah, yeah i got a permit no it's herman's hermits hermit, like a i want to say it's an old band but to you it's probably brand new radio um yeah they were on the radio they played on the radio a lot My they had a lot Beepers. of hits yeah, well, we know, and this this is a band that you may have seen. Pe- Peepers may have seen this band. It's the Hermans, Hermits. They played a lot. They they had the nurses steal from me. Henry the Eighth. Well, no, see, look, Peepers, they don't steal from you. Um, but what they radio? do probably do is, yes, they probably play the radio and they probably play the song Henry the Eighth. I fought in the popular... Great War. Yes, yeah, we're not very that thankful. one. The other one. Oh, the Great One. Oh dear. No, not that one. That's not a real war. That was in your head. We know that didn't exist. Okay, he's asleep, so we're just gonna leave him be. I'm just gonna tuck beepers in real quick. Just gonna tuck him in. Send him a little lullaby. Oh me, oh my! <laughs> that was our old guy character, Peepers. Uh, you can get in touch with us on social media by uh, go to facebook.com/thirdmen. You can go on Twitter at thirdmencast. Uh, you can visit us on Tumblr. That's thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can visit our 
our webpage, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. Down on the internet superhighway, yeah. Yeah, we got our show and show notes there. You can shoot us an email, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Right. You can find us on our iHeartRadio, which is... Radio! Spreaker. Yes, radio. Oh, God, people <laughs> woke up. Spreaker, which is where we host our show, uh, which is an iHeartRadio uh, podcasting service. It's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, Spreaker. You can search for The Third Men on there uh, and find us there. You could also search us on YouTube where I do some visualizing of our uh, of our show. Occasionally some goof-em-ups, occasionally full episodes. Uh, so lots of fun over there. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. It uh, helps us out a great deal. Bumps us up in people's uh it makes us more visible is what i want to say it makes us more visible and so it's a it's a big help you can also find us on acast and other podcatchers of the sort you know if you have any listener questions you want to send in please feel free to do so if you send us a question we will answer it thank you to everybody who who gave the great responses about where they were when they first heard broken boy soldiers we'll try and do those in a uh, every single one's got a story to tell segment uh, at some mm. point but uh, we'd also like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help in recording of our theme song, We're the Third Men. And thank you to Susanna Roundtree for the intro and outro of our program. I also want to just say, Paul, that uh, I didn't get to say it on the podcast, but your drumming on the, the recent live thing you plugged in at the end there, oh. real good. It was my first time behind a kit, and uh, I uh, we had a great deal of fun jamming and stuff, and uh, I hope to do some more of it. It was a blast, but thank you. Well, you sounded great. And I think that's going to do it. As always, Paul, I'll be looking for a home in a live audience. Oh, I'll be looking for a home in a keytar. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) See you next week. Bye. (laughs) For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at ThirdMenCast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. call uh, uh, an orgy of all piano players an F key party with penists <laughs> you could just say play soothing music and that it will be like yeah yeah He's gonna do the same thing. I think if I ever started to like have to suck for drugs or something, that would be. I would (laughs) do that and then go go in. You know what I mean? (laughs) Just the slow count. Uh, Five on the Live is our our newest segment uh, in which we we take um, five cover songs uh, total uh, that are played Five live. live songs. Yes. Oh, maybe I misunderstood that.
some nice facts that we've done smelled. I don't know why I turned into Dracula at the end there. <laughs> we've done smelled. I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. I'm over it. I'm done. I'm leaving the podcast. Yeah, that turned out okay. Yeah. It was Paul steering the sleepy ship for a little while, but... (laughs) (laughs) I woke up when we got to feminism. Roskilt. Roskilt Festival. Roskilt Festival. (laughs) Roskilt Festival. Um Festival. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it was Donald Trump. One yeah. more cup of cafe. <laughs> One more cup of cafe. Oh man, that's gonna be very relevant. Hey, there's a Washington Post critic that's name is Anne Hornaday. <laughs>